By the time a plane on a long haul journey reaches its cruising altitude, there's little more for you to do than settle in and select an in-flight movie to watch. If you're lucky, the hum of the plane's mechanical systems might be just the right white noise to lull you to sleep, unless the excitement of traveling to a new part of the world keeps you awake as you look forward to reaching your destination. Suddenly, the plane plummets like a rock, hurtling through the night sky just before suddenly jolting back upward. As your body is thrown from weightlessness to more than twice the force of gravity in mere seconds, the aircraft's power goes out. What happened next? It's time to find out. This is Take to the Sky, the Air Disaster Podcast. Welcome back to Take to the Sky, the Air Disaster Podcast. My name is Stephanie. And I'm Shelly. And we are excited to have you join us for today's episode. Shelly, for anyone who's listening for the first time today, what is one word you would use to describe our podcast? One word I think that comes to mind immediately is harrowing. Harrowing stories. I love that. And it's true. I actually think a lot of the stories we have told are indeed harrowing. Want to know what my word is? The word I would use is inspiring. Oh. That's not a joke. I'm not kidding about that. I know the stories we tell are about plane crashes. They are indeed harrowing. That's a great word. But it doesn't change the fact that this is an inspiring podcast. Each week, we bring you a story about an air disaster. We look at the backstory, the passengers, the crew, and the facts that contributed to the crash and the investigation, but we also look at legacies. We're both intensely interested in what we can learn from air disasters, and that's why we love these stories. We are inspired by their role in aviation safety and why flying is the safest way that we can travel. If you're a traveler, and we are both avid travelers ourselves, or if you're here from more of a true crime perspective, we think you're going to be as hooked on these stories as we are. And speaking of stories, today's tale is pretty incredible. Um, Before we jump in, though, Let me ask you, Shelley, how are you with turbulence? That's an interesting question because for me, there's a before and after. So I think I mentioned to you before that I previously had a fear of flying that I overcame, thankfully. But when I first started flying, um, actually, it was a this was in my early 20s, and I was leaving Vegas on a plane. And as we were ascending up to you know cruising altitude, the plane dropped. And I think it only dropped like 1,500 feet, but it was so jarring. The oxygen masks came down. People screamed on the plane. I screamed. My friend who was in the back of the plane, who was not at all afraid of flying, laughed her head off. (laughs) And that experience really put my fear of flying into hyper overdrive. And again, luckily I overcame that, which I'm happy to share on another episode. But that was how I used to uh, think of turbulence. Now I think of turbulence more like the same way that if you're in your car driving down a road, you hit a pothole. It doesn't really do anything. You just just Mm -hmm. feel a bump. Yeah. I have always sort of felt like it's a little bit of a roller coaster. I've never really been worried about it. And to be honest, I don't typically think about it. It is very much kind of a, you know, if you're driving down the road and you hit a bump, you wouldn't really put any more thought into it than that. Today's story isn't directly about turbulence, but as I was researching it, I definitely started thinking about it. I've been through some pretty serious turbulence, but I can't say it's ever been so bad that I've been genuinely frightened. It's never really crossed the line between, you know, kind of like the this is uncomfortable or this is unexpected versus like, I am in danger, this plane is going down. 
Although I also think that that has a little bit to do with the fact that oftentimes when there's going to be some turbulence, you usually hear a pilot say to you something like, it's going to be a bumpy ride or, you know, keep those seatbelts fast. And they're looking out and making sure that you're as aware as they are. Exactly. It serves as really good preparation. Right. So that was not the case on October 30th, 1999. Let's talk about today's story, which is Egypt Air 990. As a quick note, I reference a pretty long list of resources as I was researching today's story. Among them are the NTSB Aircraft Accident Brief and a few articles that were related from uh, places like the LA Times, the Atlantic, CNN, Wired, the AP, the Chicago Tribune, ABC, the BBC, and the Wall Street Journal. All of these resources will be linked on our website, which is www.taketotheskypodcast.com. October 30th, 1999 was a calm, quiet night in Los Angeles, California, which is where our story begins. Egypt Air Flight 990 was bound for Cairo, Egypt. It was a direct flight with an intermediate stop at JFK International Airport in New York City. There were 203 passengers in total. 32 of the passengers embarked in Los Angeles, ready to travel halfway around the world that night, and the rest of the passengers boarded at JFK. Flight 990 was scheduled to depart around 1 o'clock in the morning on October 31st, 1999, with an in-flight time of about 10 hours between New York and Cairo. You can kind of imagine how people were probably feeling at that point, right? You know, preparing for a long flight is hard enough, but when your flight is scheduled to leave at 1 a.m., you think about it. You have to be at the airport a couple of hours in advance. You're already probably overtired. Good chance you didn't get a nap in that day as you were doing your last-minute packing. Have you ever had a flight leave that early? It's been a long time. I think I did a red-eye once where it was a wonky kind of midnight leave, and then we ended up being where we were like early, but I think that's the closest I've ever been to that. Not internationally yet. Yep. I'm not going to lie. I've pretty much sworn them off because they are the worst for your systems. You know, it's just, you're a groggy mess and I'm a terrible plane sleeper. I am so bad at falling asleep. I don't know if it's just the excitement or the jitters or what it is. I just can't do it very well. Me too. When I can avoid one of those flights that leave that late, I will do anything possible. Although you might expect most passengers probably were pretty exhausted that night, there was also a good amount of excitement on board as well. 54 of the passengers were part of an organized tour group from Grand Circle Travel. They were retirees who were heading off on a 14-day tour of Egypt. There were also another 30 Americans who were part of an elder hostel tour, which was bound for their own two-week Egyptian experience. So really about 85 of the passengers that were there were going off in these sort of vacations that, you know, dreams are made of. Have you ever traveled as part of a tour group, by the way? No, I haven't yet. I've done a couple. I've done um, G Adventures before. Um, it was one of those things where you meet, you don't necessarily leave on the same plane. But I can tell you a million years ago in high school, I did uh, two different trips to Europe with my theater group. Uh, so there were probably 25 students and then you've got chaperones. You take up a whole section of the plane. It's kind of a really cool experience, you know, like especially at, when you're looking forward to a trip like that, there's just this sort of enthusiasm and this excitement that come from sitting with people who are experiencing it the exact same way that you are. They've gone through the planning meetings. They've all paid their deposits. Like, you know, you kind of build this together for months and then you get there. So I'm I'm sure that's what the cabin felt like as people are settling in. They're just, you know, they're super excited. 
There may also have been kind of a twinge of sadness on board that night, too. There was a small group of Egyptian students who were heading home from a foreign exchange program that had just ended for them in Baltimore, Maryland. The students had been in the USA for about two weeks, and they were returning home to wait through the winter. And in the spring, they were going to welcome a small group of students from Dunbar High School to their hometown in Luxor. So, you know, kind of the bittersweetness of your experience ending, but looking forward to the next experience and getting to see your friends again in a couple of months. Totally. In addition, um, 33 Egyptian soldiers were on board that night. They had actually just finished training exercises with the U.S. military. There were also several other Egypt Air crew members, including some off-duty pilots who were effectively hitching a ride back home. One of them, by the way, was Captain Hatem Rushdie. He was the chief of Egypt Air's 767 pilot group for the airline, so kind of a more higher-ranking individual, sitting out, out with the passengers that night, not on active crew that night. The aircraft taking Egypt Air 990 from JFK to Cairo was a Boeing 767-366ER, um, so it makes sense that Captain Rishi would be there. And this particular plane was purchased brand new by Egypt Air almost exactly a decade earlier in 1989. The plane had made more than 7,500 flights over the course of 33,000 hours during its lifetime. In command that night was Captain Ahmed El-Habashi, who is 57 years old and had been flying as a pilot since 1963. That's when he was hired by United Arab Airlines. United Arab Airlines, by the way, eventually became Egypt Air in 1971. So he had been with the same airline through his career. As a command captain, El-Habashi had flown 14,384 hours, and more than 6,300 of those miles were on a 767. He had only been in the USA for about a half a day before taking command of Flight 990 to head, to head home. Um, he had actually piloted an earlier flight from Cairo to JFK that had arrived that afternoon, and after getting some sleep, he was back in the cockpit. The first officer was Adele Anwar. He was much younger than Captain El-Habashi. He was 36 years old, but he had five years of flight experience with Egypt Air. He actually wasn't supposed to be on board that day. He had switched duty with another colleague because of a very important reason. He had to get home for his wedding, which was scheduled for that weekend. So nice of someone to offer to switch duty with him to make sure he could make it home. I'm sure his fiance uh, was really looking forward to having them there to wrap up some of this preparation. Yeah, that's really sweet. Yeah. Because this was a long haul flight, there was also a relief crew that was ready to step in to help to fly the plane. This is common on long haul flights, although each airline may have different protocols and procedures for how it's executed. The way it typically works, uh, and especially for Egypt Air in this case, is that a plane will have what they call an active crew and a cruise crew. The active crew are basically the primary pilot and co-pilot. They're responsible for things like takeoff and landing. When the plane is at cruise altitude, the secondary crew steps in and provides relief. Usually, the active crew flies for the first couple of hours after takeoff before switching with the cruise crew. And then the second switch will take place a couple of hours before landing so that they're back in the cockpit and ready to go as the plane is beginning its descent. 
The redundancy built into the system ensures that the entire cockpit crew is well-rested throughout the journey. After all, 10 hours is a really long time to fly an airplane without relief, especially when you're thinking about that 1 a.m. takeoff, flying through the night, eventually hitting the next morning. Good idea to have some backup with you. For Egypt Air 990, the crew's crew consisted of Captain Ralph Noraldine and First Officer Gamil Albatuti. At age 59, Albatuti was the oldest member of the flight crew that day. He was hired in 1987 after service with the Egyptian Air Force. He was a flight instructor for them, as a matter of fact. And he had flown more than 12,000 miles with Egypt Air and more than 5,000 miles aboard a 767. Interestingly, um, Albatuti had the opportunity to be promoted to captain in the early 1990s, but he actually didn't move forward with that. He stayed as a first officer. He decided he didn't want to sit for the airline transport pilot license exam, which uh, was conducted in English. He didn't believe he had the English proficiency needed to pass the test. That said, some of his colleagues speculated he actually preferred his status as a senior first officer, which came with a couple of benefits, including getting to to choose his flight schedule. You know, he got to decide if he wanted to be on the JFK to Cairo flight. Um, And by the way, many people did call him Captain. Uh, That was a nickname um, and also a reference to his rank in the Air Force. So by 1995, the opportunity for that promotion was gone. When he reached his 55th birthday, um, he aged out of the promotion system. So you know who's on board. We've got an experienced crew, just like we like to see in these stories. We've got a cabin full of tourists and students and military personnel. Everyone's seated. We're ready for departure. And Egypt Air 990 pushed back from the gate, taxied to the runway, and lifted off at 1.20 a.m. The first 20 minutes of the flight were uneventful for the cockpit crew, which at this point is our active crew. We have Captain El Habashi and First Officer Anwar who are in the cockpit. The cockpit voice recorder was on and functional, and it captured all of the conversation that happened. And by the way, as a note, the majority of the conversations held between crew members were uh, in Arabic. And that was because all of the cabin crew members were fluent in Arabic. I wanted to clarify that because um, the dialogue was captured and then uh, recorded through the NTSB accident report and translated during that process. So I'll share the translations with you today since my Arabic uh, leaves a little bit to be desired. (laughs) Aside from Uh, Most of the communication, which, you know, honestly, um, it was mostly with air traffic control and a little bit of drama, uh, a little conversation about some internal processes happening within the airline, um, really kind of just amounted to gossip. Uh, There was nothing at all to suggest anything but a smooth flight ahead. Just before 1.40 a.m., the cockpit doors open and Relief First Officer El Batuti steps inside. Immediately, First Officer Anwar tells him that he's slept, suggesting he's worried that El Batuti's presence in the cockpit might mean that he's already being relieved of his duties. Remember, typically in this situation, the, the first crew is going to fly for the first couple of hours of a flight. Uh, the plane had only been in the air for about 20 minutes at this point, so it's way too early to need the, the relief crew. And sure enough, Albatuti says, just wait, let me tell you something. I'm not going to sleep at all. I might come and sit for two hours, at which point First Officer Anwar reminds him that he's slept, he's rested. Albatuti then says, you mean you're not going to get up? You will get up and get some rest and come back. 
Anwar and El Batuti continue to kind of gently argue for a little bit. Um, they, it really kind of comes across as almost very polite. Anwar doesn't want to give up his role, and it eventually becomes clear that he also doesn't want to upset or disrespect the senior of the two first officers, which is Albatuti. Anwar eventually says, you should have told me. You should have told me this, Captain Gamil. You should have said, I will work first. Still, within just a few moments, First Officer Anwar concedes the point. Anwar says he's going to go back to the cabin and rest while Albatuti takes on the role of active First Officer. Albatuti leaves the cockpit briefly, and that gives Anwar just enough time to say to Captain El-Habashi, who of course is still seated there, do you see how he does whatever he pleases? Kind of a nod to the fact that, you know, in his senior role, he gets to call the shots. At this point, El-Habashi tells him, look, you don't have a camel tied up in this situation, right? Which, by the way, so far is my favorite one-liner of anything I have read in any NTSB accident report. Uh, what it basically translates to is you don't have a stake in this. Uh, right. but I was I, thinking it's like the American <laughs> version or the English version of you don't have a dog in this fight. That's exactly right. That's it. It's, it's that's very amazing. Much what the translation is. Yeah, That's amazing. I, I think yeah. I, I I kind of want to use that. That's one of those translation points that it, it kind of resonated with me. I, I kind of like that one. The uh, the exchange ends though as the control tower clears the aircraft to move to a new position, and about twenty seconds later, First Officer Anwar is headed off to rest, while re- the uh, relief officer Albatuti takes his spot to the right of Captain El Habashi. Between 1.42 and 1.48 a.m., the crew engages in some additional conversations, a little bit of a return to the drama that they'd been discussing before. Apparently, everybody was kind of in on what was going on. And there were a couple of handoffs between air traffic control. Shortly after 1.48, Captain El-Habashi gets out of his seat to make a quick trip to the lavatory, noting that the passengers were eating and it would be a good idea to go before it got crowded after the meal. That left Albatuti alone in the cockpit. About 10 seconds after that, the cockpit voice recorder picked up the sound of the cockpit door closing behind El Habashi, and it also picked up a muffled word or phrase. When listening to the recording later on, the Arabic translators were unable to decipher what he said. Four people who listened to it believed Al Batuti said something along the lines of control it. Another believed that it sounded like the word hydraulic. There was no consensus on what that word was. It was the first audible word that he said once he was alone in the cockpit. There was plenty of consensus around the next thing that he said. Nine seconds later, Albatuti quietly said, I rely on God. Over the course of the next 90 seconds, Albatuti, still alone in the cockpit, would say the phrase eight more times. As Albatuti sat in the cockpit, a horrific scene began to play out on the plane. Just after he said, I rely on God for the first time, the plane entered a steep, entirely unexpected nosedive that resulted in total weightlessness in the cabin. The plane began to pick up incredible speed. Within moments, the master warning alarm was picked up by the cockpit voice recorder. The indicator suggested that the plane had exceeded its maximum operating speed of 0.86 Mach, which is about 660 miles per hour. In fact, it was hurtling toward the ground at such a rapid rate of speed it approached the sound barrier, which is approximately 770 miles per hour. It was fast, it was sudden, and frankly, it would have been terrifying for passengers in the cabin including the off-duty crew who was heading back to Egypt. 
Despite the zero gravity conditions, Captain El Habashi was able to fight his way from the lavatory to the cockpit. An incredibly heroic feat. When he arrived, Captain El Habashi asked, asked Albatuti what was happening, and Albatuti responded with, I rely on God, which he repeated twice. That's not the, that's probably not the response that he was looking for. Like, that's not a good indicator. That's no, not a good it doesn't. Indicator. It doesn't clarify the situation. It doesn't no. provide the context he's looking for. So El Habashi asked again, "What's happening, Gamil? What's happening?" Five seconds later, the captain asked, "What is this? What is this? Did you shut the engines?" He then instructs Albatuti to pull, and three times he says the phrase "pull with me," which was interpreted as instruction to pull back on the control column and therefore fully power the engines. Captain El Habashi then applied the plane's speed brakes, which on a plane can be used to de- decrease drag or air resistance. That maneuver stopped the nosedive, but it pushed the aircraft into a steep climb that added enough G-force to the cabin that it doubled the weight of gravity. So the passengers at this point would have gone from total weightlessness to feeling an enormous push on them into their seats within a split second. At that point, Because of the stress the plane had endured over the course of just about three minutes, it's been three minutes since we first saw the captain go to the lavatory, both of the plane's engines ceased to function. The aircraft lost power at that time. That also stopped the cockpit voice recorder from functioning. The plane again fell into a steep nosedive and just about 10,000 feet above the Atlantic Ocean, close to Nantucket, which is off the coast of Massachusetts, the plane broke apart and it made contact with the water at 1.52 a.m. Before 2 o'clock a.m. on October 31, 1999, the U.S. Coast Guard launched a search and rescue mission for Egypt Air 990's crash site. The rescue effort that took place involved both land and sea teams, and they searched approximately 10,000 square miles of ocean. By the end of the first day, they had located some debris, but nothing else. And on November 1st, the search and rescue mission was, was formally suspended and transitioned to search and recovery. Many passengers were eventually recovered, but no one on board survived the crash. Any guesses what happened there? This, to me, is shaping up to look like what perhaps happened on German Wings Flight 9525, which is a potential mm-hmm. pilot that had bad intentions. But can we talk really quickly about what you just described here from the passenger perspective? Oh, I don't want to talk about it, but let's talk about it. (laughs) From weightlessness to then having the G-forces, extreme pressure, and then to make things way worse, the plane breaks apart in air. Yeah. And remembering too... I mean, if you want to go to the very beginning of that time lapse, dinner is being served in the cabin. So, I mean, that's, that is why the captain went to the bathroom in the first place, because he wanted to beat the dinner rush. So you have everyone seated. You have people walking through the aisles, you know, maybe offering you menu choices, handing out your meal. And all of a sudden, with no warning, absolutely no indication that there may be turbulence or that there may be anything else going on, the plane goes into an incredibly steep nosedive. So that brings up weightlessness. This is, by the way, my first thought is I hope everyone was still wearing their seatbelts. Because There's if no you're not- no way everybody was, though, right? There's no, no way 
No, no. And I, I think for a lot of people, one of the first things you do, especially on an international flight, is take your seatbelt off. And there's a reason people tell you to keep it on. In this situation, you wouldn't, and certainly not knowing what's coming next, if the plane goes into that sort of a nosedive, and especially knowing that just a few moments later, it was corrected. And I mean, overcorrected in some ways knowing that you, if you'd been wearing a seatbelt, at the very least, you wouldn't have floated up and hit your head on the ceiling. For me, that my takeaway is always wear your seatbelt. No matter what's going on, no matter how uncomfortable you think you might be wearing it, it is well worth just the click to make sure that you are in place. It is. And the the unfortunate thing is that there might just have been people up going to the restroom as soon as that seatbelt sign clicked off, uh-huh. they're like, great, now I'm going to go to the laboratory. And those poor individuals, you know, they they were thrust upon the ceiling and had no way of knowing just doing yeah. what anybody normally would have done in the course of a flight. It's just exactly. it's so frightening. It's so frightening exactly. to think about this. And to go to from that nosedive into a couple of minutes later, I mean, this, this did take a good, it was more than 90 seconds before they were able to write the plane. So at that point in time, that's when you start to get the gravity pushing back on you, twice the force of of what we're used to. So an incredible amount of pressure. It's you've you've gone from being uncomfortable to more uncomfortable. There's no communication for obvious reasons. You don't know what's happening. You don't know if you're going to survive this incident. And then in the middle of all of that, when the engines lose power, there's no more power to the cabin. The lights go out. It's very dark. And from there, it was about a minute until the plane broke apart. But you also, and I, I, I hate to say this, but I, I think it probably goes, it's probably worth noting, the cabin hasn't lost pressure. We've talked in the past about a lack of pressurization, and that can lead you to lose consciousness very quickly. Right. There's a very good chance people understood what was happening. They, or at the very least, they understood that the plane was going down and then the plane was going up and there was no gravity and then a lot of gravity and they didn't know why. So I don't want to, I don't want to suggest in this case that maybe it was a very quick and painless and peaceful ending. I think unfortunately in this case, it was four minutes of sheer terror and four minutes is a very long time. It's way too long. It gets as worse as it can get. Almost. It's it yeah, yeah. it's a it, when when you know it's it's difficult when you read the kind of the reconstructions of this when you look through the NTSB report and you think about the fact that they don't go into a lot of detail and of course when you don't have survivors you can't ask anybody and you certainly can't project what that experience might be like you take the facts and you can think about the facts and that's kind of what you do in this case you think about what those last four minutes were like and it's. It's just a a horrible, horrible ending to some incredible experiences that people were looking forward to and lives well lived and students who are heading home. And for me, that's why this story is in a lot of ways one of the most heartbreaking ones that I have reviewed, That certainly that we've told to date. So you're probably wondering what happened. And you, you might remember, too, a couple of episodes ago, we talked about TWA 800, and I mentioned that was a tale of two investigations. Egypt Air 990 crashed into international waters, and it involved an aircraft and crew from Egypt. So guess what? 
we have another tale of two investigations. This time, we're looking at the investigation conducted by the NTSB, the National Transportation Safety Board, and the investigation conducted by the Egyptian Civil Aviation Authority, or the ECAA. According to the International Civil Aviation Organization, when there is an air disaster that takes place in international waters, the investigation is under the jurisdiction of the country where the aircraft was registered. In this situation, that's Egypt. However, the Egyptian government requested that the NTSB serve as the lead in large part because of their geographical proximity to the crash site. And so that's exactly what happened. So let's start with the NTSB's findings. One of the first things the NTSB could rule out was weather. We've seen weather play an enormous and sometimes even deadly role in some of the stories that we've shared on Take to the Sky so far, but the skies were clear and meteorological conditions were good that night, so weather didn't play a role in why Egypt air crashed into the ocean. The search and recovery mission that began on October 31st lasted until December 22nd that year, and a subsequent search for debris and missing parts of the plane were conducted in March and April of 2000. Between the two efforts, more than 70% of the plane was located, and that meant investigators had the chance to study the debris fields they located as well as each part of the plane. The plane was broken into small fragments that were consistent with hitting the water at a high rate of speed. That led investigators to rule out an explosion. Really good news because that also eliminated terrorism as a possible reason for the crash. The wreckage showed signs of metal fatigue that were consistent with a plane that was subjected to sudden and extreme conditions, which in this case include two steep nosedives and a steep climb. But investigators were able to determine that the plane itself was in good condition at takeoff, which confirmed that the deterioration happened as a result of the flight conditions, and it wasn't a mechanical issue that could have been resolved before takeoff. In addition to looking at the debris condition, the NTSB had a good amount of data to analyze from the flight data recorder. You think about the cockpit voice recorder, which captures conversations and noises from the cockpit, and it can be enormously useful to helping to understand what might have gone wrong in the aftermath of a crash. And in fact, on, as we've seen on a couple of our previous episodes, the audio files can sometimes provide clues that can change the course of an investigation. In addition, though, Flight data recorders track a number of flight performance indicators that can speak to what various systems were doing or not doing when involved in a crash. For Egypt Air Flight 990, the NTSB was able to use the flight data recorder data to create an accident sequence study. They looked at exactly what each system was doing and the order that various failures occurred to understand what could have gone wrong. They were able to determine that at 1.49 a.m., just about a minute after Captain El-Habashi left for the bathroom, the autopilot was disconnected. The plane's elevators then changed slightly. The elevators, by the way, are used to control a plane's pitch. And when elevators are moved, they can push the plane's nose up or down slightly as well. In this case, we were able to determine that the plane's nose was pushed down. Eight seconds later, the throttle levers were moved from the cruise position to idle, and one second later, the plane entered its first nosedive. It took about 90 seconds for Captain El-Habashi to rejoin First Officer Al-Batuti in the cockpit, 
and once the captain returned, the flight data recorder noted that the elevators were moved into a nose-up position. That decreased the plane's rate of descent. Then, though, the engine start lever switches for both engines were moved from the run to the cutoff position, which turned them off. And the final piece of information recorded before the crash coincided with Captain El Habashi's request that Albatuti, quote, pull up. During this time, the flight data recorder noted that the elevator surfaces were in what's called a split condition. The elevator on the left side was in a nose-up position. That would, of course, raise the plane up. The elevator on the right side was in a nose-down position. Captain El Habashi was responsible for the left elevator, and First Officer Albatuti was responsible for the right elevator. Is this confirming some of your guesses as to what might have gone on in the cockpit? Com- completely. <laughs> It is starting to look a little suspicious. So the the NTSB then zeroed in on the elevators um, since they were recorded to be in the split position. They ran simulations to attempt to recreate the elevator surface movements that were recorded. That included doing things like disengaging autopilot to see if there was an impact on the onboard systems that could have caused the crash. We are not a technical podcast, so I'm not going to go into the full methodology of this part of the investigation, although I will say it's a fascinating read. We'll link to it through the show notes if you are interested in kind of getting into some of the real details here. But I'll summarize by saying that the simulations, which were the results of which uh, they were evaluated by pilots who represented Boeing, Egypt Air, and the FAA, they concluded that the elevators were not to blame for the crash. Ultimately, even if the elevators were left in the split position, the pilot or first officer still could have regained control of the aircraft for up to 20 seconds after an elevator failure was first recorded. Even alone in the cockpit, Albatuti, who, remember, was an experienced pilot, would not have had a problem returning the plane to normal conditions. In fact, he had more than enough time to make a full recovery. But he didn't. With that, the NTSB rolled out its final mechanical scenario, and they took a look at the man who was alone inside the cockpit at the first sign of disaster, and that was Gamil Albatuti. One of the first clues that looking at Albatuti might help shed some light on the events that contributed to the crash of Egypt Air 990 came from the cockpit voice recorder. I mentioned that the voice recorder's transcript was translated from Arabic to English, and that can certainly come with some misinterpretations. There was one thing, though, that was abundantly clear, and that was the lack of surprise or emotion when Albatuti first would have noticed something was wrong. The cockpit voice recorder didn't catch any noises that were consistent with anxiety or concern. He didn't call for help. He didn't connect with air traffic control. He didn't attempt to resolve the problem. Instead, All he did was say, I rely on God multiple times until Captain El Habashi re-entered the cockpit. At that time, the captain asked him what was happening multiple times, and Albatuti never answered him. All he did was say, I rely on God again, but he never provided any information or insight on what he had been experiencing or observing in the moments before. No data that might have helped him to, to share what was going on with the captain. 
The NTSB also noted that when the autopilot disconnected, there was no associated warning tone that would typically sound if autopilot were unexpectedly disengaged. That would have, of course, been picked up by the cockpit voice recorder. And that led investigators to wonder if Albatuti manually disengaged autopilot while the captain was in the lavatory. The investigation noted that autopilot, until that moment anyway, was working as expected. Another manual process was the deliberate movement of the throttle levers from cruise to idle. Those movements were recorded by the flight data recorder in a way that was consistent with a manual action, not one that would have been prompted by the autopilot disengagement. And finally, and maybe the most critically, the engine lever switches were found to be manually moved to the cutoff position. Turning off the engines in that particular moment would have been seen as counterproductive as part of a larger recovery effort that was already underway by Captain El-Habashi at this time. He was applying the speed brake in an attempt to slow or stop the descent at that point. And in fact, the cockpit voice recorder captures the captain's surprise when he asked Albatuti, what is this? Did you shut the engines? In its accident report on Egypt Air Flight 990, the NTSB was unable to definitively suggest a cause for the crash. The probable cause, which is listed within the report, says that the plane's departure from normal cruise altitude and subsequent impact with the Atlantic Ocean as a result of the relief first officer's flight control inputs. The reason for the relief flight officer's actions was not determined. That is absolutely terrifying. And then I go directly to if I am a family member of someone who was on that plane, that conclusion would never be good enough for me. And based on the facts as we know it, as were reported you know, through the NTSB report and other findings, this is exactly like I don't see of any other possibility that you could substitute in and the facts would line up against that mm -hmm. and make as much sense as this probable outcome does. Well, it's funny you mention that because we're not quite done. <laughs> Remember, I mentioned this is a tale of two investigations. Well, Egypt had handed the investigation authority over to the NTSB, but they were never particularly happy with the NTSB's findings, even when the report was released. I'm sure. Yeah. It, and you, you can understand why. I mean, this, these are Egyptian pilots in an Egyptian aircraft. They want to make sure that they are also getting the truth. So the NTSB's initial findings were released on November 19th, 1999, which was less than three weeks after the crash. The NTSB's chairman, um, Jim Hall, had a press conference. And while he acknowledged all signed, that all signs pointed to intentional decisions made by Albatuti, he didn't make any accusations. He didn't use any words like suicide. He didn't mention religion. He didn't mention anything along those lines. What he said was, no one wants to get to the bottom of this mystery quicker than those investigating this accident, both here and in Egypt. But we won't get there on a road paved with leaks, supposition, speculation, and spin. That road does not lead to the truth, and the truth is what both the American people and the Egyptian people seek. Egyptian officials were livid when they heard the suggestion that one of their own pilots could have caused this devastation. They were so mad that within weeks of the crash, they launched their own investigation, and their findings were the opposite of what the NTSB reported. They determined the crash was not a murder-suicide and was almost certainly caused by a mechanical problem. 
I will tell you, we would need another hour to walk through the second investigation, and perhaps we will find that hour in a future episode. But ultimately, the Egyptian government concluded that it was the plane's elevators that were responsible after all. They found that the elevators were very clearly damaged upon their recovery, which the NTSB acknowledged while expanding that the damage was almost certainly caused during the accident. The elevators themselves weren't damaged before the accident. The Egyptian officials had a rationale for absolutely every choice that Al-Batuti made. Uh, They noted that the nosedive, the initial nosedive, was to avoid a collision with something outside, possibly another plane or a missile. They said that cutting off the engines was intended to restart systems that had stalled. Um, And in fact, the Egyptian officials also said interpreters probably misunderstood the intent behind the words that he was using in the cockpit, um, saying that the phrase, I rely on God, is often used in dire situations. It's not a prayer necessarily. And it may have indicated that Albatuti knew exactly how much danger the flight was in and was trying to do everything that he could to fix it. Some of the explanations feel far-fetched, but whether officials were trying to protect a beloved citizen or just simply understand the evidence and note that it told a different story to them, to this day, those are the outcomes that they share from their report. You know, what's interesting about this is that there are some country investigations that we find where the investigation goes in this direction. So there's one country that has one perspective. The second country has a different perspective. And I'm just wondering, without at all being an expert on this, worldwide, there is typically a great stigma around things like suicide and mental illness. And in some cultures, that stigma is even greater than in other Mm -hmm. cultures to a point where families, communities won't accept that someone actually had the intention to take their own life because- absolutely. all the things that come with that. So for me, when I hear this, I'm wondering how much of that played into their conclusions, how much of their conclusions were distorted because of perhaps a cultural stigma that existed. And again, I am no expert in any of these fields, but it's just something that comes to my mind. No, I I think it's a really valid point because I think it can be very easy for a group, even like the NTSB, who... Um, I don't think you could necessarily, I mean, they, there were American citizens who were on board, but it wasn't, it wasn't an American crew, not an American aircraft. So I'm not going to say that the NTSB would be impartial in this case, but what I would say is that to think that one of your own countrymen would do something like this, it may be unfathomable. And it may also be the kind of thing where you simply could not ever have a report that would say that. And you know, when you look through at some of the information that they provide, it, in a situation where you don't have definitive answers, even the NTSB said that they could not positively conclude what downed the plane that night. I, in a way, you really can't, you know, even if all signs point to something where it is, I'm going to use the term pilot error here. I'm not even going to use the, the, the concept of suicide. Just say that the, the pilot was responsible in some way. You might not want that on your record. And in fact, you might go to all lengths to find any amount of evidence that would make people question whether or not that's true. I, I absolutely understand that. I understand that from a traveler perspective. I understand that, you know, even thinking about what the government would have wanted to find or what they were hoping to find. So it does make sense to me. But wait, 
there's more. In February of 2000, an Egypt air pilot named Hamdi Hanafi Taha flew to the United Kingdom seeking political asylum in exchange for what he believed was the real motive behind Gamil Al-Batudi's decision to crash Egypt Air Flight 990. And this is where things got really interesting. Al-Batudi had a documented reputation for being a nuisance, especially at the Pennsylvania Hotel in Manhattan, which is where many Egypt Air crew members stayed between flights. During the criminal investigation for this particular story, the FBI interviewed employees from the hotel who reported an incredible range of complaints against him. Some said that he would harass them. He would follow employees around. He would make inappropriate comments to them. He was also documented following female guests to their rooms, and he was reported to have exposed himself to underage girls while staying at the property. Oh, no. These are serious allegations. Taha added another layer to them when he told investigators that Albatudi's deplorable actions had finally caught up to him in the hours before the flight. Taha said that Captain Hatim Rushdie, remember, he's the chief of Egypt Air 767 pilot group who was on board, yes. had spoken with him about departing uh, just before departing for the airport. And he was allegedly told that he was going to face disciplinary action once on the ground in Cairo. And he was no longer going to be allowed to fly the route between New York and Cairo. In addition to the social stigma that would come from losing a choice route like that, Albatudi also would have taken a financial hit. He often bought products in the United States that he would sell in Egypt to supplement his income. Taha was later thought to be an unreliable informant who was motivated by his own personal grudge against the airline. But the FBI was able to confirm that Albatudi was going to lose that route. So there had been a conversation at some point in time. And as far as motives go, that's one to consider. Perhaps Albatudi, knowing it would be his last flight from New York to Cairo, wanted to make sure that it was Hatem Rushdie's last flight as well. So was it a mechanical issue? Was it a suicide? Was it a revenge plot? There's a lot to unpack with this particular story. You know, it's interesting to me when we talk about the possible motive that there was some sort of potential disciplinary action about to come into his life. This was very yeah. similar to the other story, German Wings Flight 9525, where the pilot there was also, um, he had lied about some things, you know, yeah. and he was afraid that he was going to lose his flood, his eyesight, which would have prevented him from flying. So there was like a triggering event in yeah. that situation. And I can't help but correlate it to that or compare it to this situation and say that is a similar potentially triggering event for someone that mm -hmm. perhaps saw no other way out. It's difficult when pieces like that start to show up as part of the puzzle. Because no one wants to think that someone could do that, that anyone is capable of doing something like that. And yet we have seen it in a handful of crashes. And by the way, that also, it gets me thinking a little bit about the legacy of Egypt Air 990. I would love to tell you that there were changes in aviation safety as a result of the crash into the Atlantic Ocean, but there really wasn't anything to change 
in this situation. There were no mechanical issues to repair. There were no protocols to revise. And in fact, one aspect of this flight's legacy really confirms the fact that flying is safe when you think about it. It took human action to impact the plane. If everything had been left alone, the flight would have safely continued to Cairo. Vacations would have started as planned. Lives would have been lived more fully. And that didn't happen. And that most likely is because of human decisions. So instead, today, there's a monument at Breton Point State Park in Rhode Island, which honors the 217 lives that were lost. The monument is made of granite, and three of the four sides were intentionally left rough. They're not smoothed over the way you usually see for granite, uh, which is designed to symbolize the difficult journey that family members have now that they've lost their loved ones. The names of each person is inscribed on an individual brick on the ground, and the inscription at the monument reads, in a loving memory of the 217 family members and friends lost on Egypt Air Flight 990, may God's eternal light shine upon them. And the last line reads, they are not gone from us, and is inscribed in French, Arabic, and English. That is the true cost of this situation, is the lives of all of those individuals with hopes and dreams and places that they wanted to go physically and otherwise throughout their life. And, you know, the fact that, again, there were some murky circumstances surrounding Mm -hmm. the demise of the plane, at least if you ask the Egyptian side of the investigation, NTSB feels that the probable cause, of course, was that the pilot, you know, intended to do exactly what happened. And that's really interesting about that there weren't any concrete changes because as we saw in 2015 after the German Wings 9525 flight that was when Europe started considering having more than one pilot at all times as a practice as a rule essentially and that was in 2015 yeah. that wasn't very long ago and this happened in 99 so it took from 99 and I I know that there are other incidents although I can't remember timelines off the yeah, top yeah. of my head right so it wasn't I feel like there was enough at this time for them to take precautions, and yet it doesn't yeah. seem like there were things that happened. You know, you, and I was thinking about that too, because typically this is exactly why you'd have those protocols. But in a way, Egypt Air did have protocols. They had two flight crews, and in fact, they had the right flight crew uh, ready to go when the flight took off. Al Batuti inserted himself into the cockpit after takeoff. And a part, I, I, this would be my speculation anyway, a part of what happened there is a result of culture. It could be, I'm not going to say it's Egyptian culture, but I will say it was flight culture. Al Batuti was the senior flight officer. In fact, he was senior within Egypt Air. When he says he'd like to fly the plane, what is a you know a 36-year-old first officer going to do but say, okay, sure, no problem. I'll go back and I'll come back in later on when you're done. I actually understand that from that perspective. And thinking about the fact that he had years and years of service, he came from the Air Force, he'd been a flight instructor, he had some, you know, potentially uh, black marks on his record as far as what had gone on at the Pennsylvania Hotel. Although, again, you know, there were no court cases or anything like that. That was all based on employee interview. But knowing all of that, there wasn't really a lot to say that he would do something that would result in the plane crashing. I 
I don't know if anybody would have found anything. There certainly would have been medical records. There wouldn't even have been write-ups at this point. You know, the the thought here is that the conversation was informal um, between Rushdie and Albatuti, that Rushdie would have said, look, you know, just kind of in passing, this is going to be it for you. We've got too many complaints. We've got too many reports. This isn't good for us. It's not good for our business. It's not good for you. You're just not going to fly here anymore. And in just a couple of hours, he made the decision that if he wasn't going to fly, no one else was either. So, yeah, it, you know, it, give, it gives a little really bit of tragic. credibility in a way. It does. It would, it's, it is one of the most tragic stories. I, I struggle with the ones where you don't have a really concrete legacy. But one thing I really did take away from this is that if it weren't for that, if it weren't for the drama, if it weren't for one person making a decision, that plane itself still would have been a safe and convenient and easy way for people to get to Cairo. And in a way, that's the most heartbreaking part of the whole story. So it's uh, it's it's not the most happy of stories, but it is one of those tales that you you think about. And, you know, in a way, it really does say if it weren't for human choices, I'm not going to say human error, but human choices in this case, flight, the flight would have gone on just as expected. So heartbreaking and sad and surprising and full of twists and turns. And I really didn't see the whole part about him being a nuisance at the hotel coming, but wow, as far as motivation, that, that would be an interesting one if that, if we'd had the opportunity to prove that to be true or untrue. So there you have it. Egypt Air Flight 990. So yeah, Shelley, I think this is probably one of the world's saddest stories in a lot of ways. Just a real, a real tragedy, just all the way around. It it really is everything, just from you know what the passengers potentially experienced to the complications of the investigation. That perhaps in some victims' families' eyes, there wasn't definitive justice, so to speak. You know, how can you possibly have justice in a situation like this? So I agree. It's very, very disturbing and very tragic. And that's very similar to a lot of the stories that we explore here on the podcast. And we're used to that. And I'm sure our listeners are too. And at the same time, I know, Stephanie, it's important to the both of us that we try as best as we can to end our episodes on a slightly more positive note, just so that everyone oh, can kind of yeah. take that forward into their day. Today, and, and today more than anything, perhaps. <laughs> Tell exactly. me something happy. What have you well, heard that's happy today? You know, I was on the site Upworthy, which is known for inspiring positive news headlines. Love Upworthy. I do. I do too. And there was an article there they highlighted about a man in India on an island that since 1979 has planted a tree for every year. And now the island, which was once nothing but sandbars, is populated with a beautiful, beautiful forest. And it was so amazing that these trees that he planted were able to seed and reseed themselves that yeah. the forest department, when they stumbled upon it, were actually shocked themselves. They couldn't believe the success, the green thumb, just how everything looked and it was beautiful. And that just really gave me, that just made me feel really happy in my heart because I know that we've seen a lot of that throughout at least the pandemic where, you know, as humans kind of recede from our daily participation and driving and traveling and using everything that we usually do, that nature has sort of taken back over some spaces 
we heard about Venice, for example, the canals being clean, yeah. crystal clear. I know our local beaches and rivers, people have remarked the same thing. So when I saw that, I thought, hey, this is someone who's doing some really good in the world at a time where there's just so much tragedy and so many difficult things that we're all grappling with. And I just loved, loved that story. I think that is one of the coolest things I've heard. I love it when people do that. You know, I've, I'm always really inspired by people who are willing to, you know, take a couple of moments and do something to make the world a prettier place or a better place. And it looks different for everybody. It, it could be picking up trash along the beach. It could be planting flowers. In fact, there's this book that I read. I mean, it's a kid's book. It is still today, I swear, my favorite book. It's called Miss Rumpheus. Have you ever heard of it? I've never heard of this, no. Okay. Oh, gosh. It's great. So the story of Miss Rumpheus, it's basically uh, – uh, now I'm just going to – it's it's another story time. Settle in. So it's basically about this little girl who has I, – I think it's a grandfather. And the grandfather has done all of this world travel. And she says – you know, you know, tell me about these stories about when you were traveling around. And his advice to her is you have to find a way to make the world more beautiful. And she grows up and she becomes a world traveler in her own right. She becomes a librarian. And ultimately, she returns back home to the coast. Um, as she gets older, she gets more frail and more ill. And she decides she's going to scatter um, lupin seeds, you know, those pretty pink and purple and blue flowers. She scatters them. And then over the course of the winter, they kind of seed. And then in the spring, they grow. And it's her way even though she didn't really think about it that way, of making the world more beautiful. And the book itself, by the way, everyone should read it. It is such an inspiring book. It is definitely for kids, but it's still on my shelf to this day. Great reminder that you should always be looking for a way to make a really positive mark on the world. But the book itself, I think it's, it's very much that, you know, you never quite know what you might be able to do. I'm sure he didn't necessarily think he was going to plant an entire forest of trees when he started, but through reseeding and nature, that's exactly what he was able to accomplish. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of, a lot I of positivity there. <laughs> I love that. It, well, now it kind of makes me think, you know, what positive thing can I do today? You know, it's, it's a, I, maybe that's the question everyone should ask themselves when they wake up. What can you do to make the world better today? Even right. if you think it's small, it might be big for somebody. So and even, even if you like to listen to plane crash stories like we do. <laughs> Like we've said, we get something from those legacies. And also, I mean, there's a reason that true crime is so popular. A lot of us love learning about this kind of thing. And we are, we're really glad that you love learning about this and sharing these stories too. Um, we're really glad you joined us today for this week's episode of Take to the Sky, the air disaster podcast with me, Stephanie Hupka. And Shelly Price. We've got a lot of stories left to tell and we cannot wait to share them with you. If you're feeling social, you'll find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Take to the Sky Podcast. And you'll also find us on our website at taketotheskypodcast.com. That's where you'll want to go to find our show notes and the sources that guide our research. We love recommendations for stories you want to hear. So let us know if there is an air disaster that captured your attention. And don't forget, if you have some air disaster stories of your own that you'd like to share with us, we'd love to hear about those too. And we'll use the term air disaster loosely in this case. It could be something like turbulence. It could be missing your flight. It could be lost luggage. 
we'd love to hear what your air disasters look like. We occasionally share them. In fact, I know I've got a couple of good stories that I won't mind sharing too, but let us know, right? Write to us, send them in. We'll definitely share them as part of an upcoming show. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or whichever podcast platform you love the most. Your reviews help us to share these stories and their legacies as widely as possible. We're already looking forward to another story with you next time. And until then, stay safe and well.